open your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 9. This is one of my favorite Sundays of the year as we get to celebrate what God has done in redeeming, redeeming sinners and drawing them to himself. We get to hear in just a few moments this morning some marvelous testimonies of God's abundant grace in saving them. There are six people today that will be baptized. We're very excited for them. Six trophies of God's grace, six men and women who have committed their life to Jesus Christ. And in a few moments, they're going to stand here and share with you their testimony of salvation, how God has worked in their heart. And really, each one of these testimonies is unique. Each one of them is truly a unique evidence of the fact that God can make sinners into saints. The gospel is truly a transforming power. Christ really does change lives. And we get to see this morning in visual fashion some people who have gone from death to life. And that's what baptism is about. It's a symbol illustrating the fact that God has done a work in the hearts of these people. And they, it's a picture that symbolizes the incredible work of God in transforming sinners. And so it's truly a, a marvelous symbol for us to celebrate It's an opportunity for us as a church to see the power of God and the power of the gospel on display, and we trust that you'll be encouraged as you hear these testimonies in a few minutes. For just a few moments, I would like to kind of orient our thoughts onto what baptism is, and just to take a few moments to kind of help us understand what God's Word says about baptism from Acts chapter 9. We come to... This morning in this passage, a conversion and a baptism that is truly remarkable. I believe every conversion and baptism is remarkable. I believe every time someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, it is remarkable. Luke chapter 15 says that when a sinner is saved, the courts of heaven sing. And so every salvation is an evidence of God's abundant grace. There's no such thing as a boring testimony. No matter how you've come to faith in Christ, there's no such thing as a boring testimony. Each conversion is a a miracle of God and His work of regeneration and bringing people to Himself. At the same time, there have been some well-known conversions in church history. I think back to men like John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace who was raised in a Christian home as a young boy and his parents died when he was young and so he went to live with relatives who treated him badly so he he left and went to the the Navy and that's when his life of debauchery really began and his life went into a downhill spiral very quickly. He became a a brawler and a drinker. He served in the Navy for a short time and then went and attached himself to a slave trader in Africa. And that's when his life really reached the lowest point as he engaged in a lifestyle just of wickedness and immorality. He was in the midst of a great storm off the coast of Scotland after days and days of bailing water out of their failing ship that John Newton came to see his need for Christ. And there on that ship came to be a believer in Christ and went on to become one of the greatest preachers of the 17th century. And wrote, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Famous conversion. I think of men like 
Augustine, who was a teenage rebel who, who came to Christ after the prayers of his mother, Monica, pleading with the Lord to draw this young Augustine to himself. And, and God answered those prayers, and he became one of the greatest theologians of church history. I think of Martin Luther, who in the midst of a thunderstorm and a clap of, of thunder and a, and a shout of lightning was thrown to the ground, and he said, okay, I'll, I'll go become a monk, Lord. And in a few years into his monkery... He realized that he had been pursuing all the wrong things. And God opened his heart and his eyes to the glorious doctrine of justification by faith in reading Romans chapter 1. Some incredible conversions in church history. But I would submit to you this morning that no transformation is as remarkable as that of the Apostle Paul. whom God did a marvelous work in this man's life in drawing him to himself and raising him up to be an incredible church planter writer of scripture, missionary, pastor. His salvation was significant to the life of the church. And in a sense, we today, 2,000 years later, stand on the shoulders of the Apostle Paul, reading his books, reading his writings, and seeing how God used him in a mighty way. And for a few moments this morning, I just want to bring you face to face with the conversion of the Apostle Paul. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I want you to see how God can draw a sinner to himself. And if you're here this morning to be baptized, then I want you to see that your baptism isn't a long line of baptisms that span 2,000 years. And if you're here this morning and you've been baptized and you've been saved, then I want you to rejoice in the work that God has done in your life is the same work that he did in the Apostle Paul's life. And if you're here this morning and you know Christ, but you've never been baptized by immersion... I hope you'll leave today saying, I must be obedient to the waters of baptism. Let me walk through this text with you. It's Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 18. I want to give you five C's, just some thoughts for you to hang your your thoughts on, some words to hang your thoughts on. Just very quickly, we're not going to take a lot of time on this, but let me give you five C's related to Paul's conversion. First is corruption, secondly his confrontation, thirdly his conviction, fourthly his conversion, And then, fifthly, his commission. And then we'll see his baptism as well. Let me start with the first one. The first C is corruption. And I want you to see what Paul's life was like before God got a hold of his heart. I want you to see what his life was like before Christ. And you can see it here in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It says this, it says, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This is what Paul was like before he came to Christ. His mission in life was to stamp out Christianity. To kill Christians, to persecute the church. And as we meet him here in Acts chapter 9, he is on his murderous rampage to kill the work of Christ in the church. This is actually not the first time he's mentioned in in the book of Acts. Go back to the end of Acts chapter 7. Let me show you just briefly the very first time that he's mentioned. Acts chapter 7 records for us the first martyr, the first Christian martyr, Stephen, who was one of the men chosen in Acts chapter 6 to serve the early church. He was a godly man, but he was hated by the Pharisees. 
In Acts chapter 7, I want you to see what, what Stephen did. He, he pronounced a message to the, to the, the council, the, the Jewish leaders of that day, and proclaimed to them Christ, and they hated it. Look at verse 54, says, of Acts chapter 7. Because when they heard this, when the Jewish leaders heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at, his, at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and they rushed upon him with one impulse. They hated Stephen. They hated his message. They hated the fact that he loved Christ. They hated his love for the church. Look at verse 58. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. The man who was guarding the cloaks. The man who was guarding the garments of the people who actually cast the stones on Stephen's head was Saul himself. This is his first appearance in Scripture. He is seen at the death of Stephen. And he's there giving his hearty approval to the death of this godly man. He's guarding the clothes And his involvement here demonstrates the fact that he is in favor of Stephen's death. And it shows the wickedness of his heart. It shows his hatred for Christians and his hatred for Christ. Look at the beginning of chapter 8. Verse 1 says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Saul was clapping his hands, totally affirming of the death of this man. And it says in verse 1, and, that, that, and on that day a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Do you see what he's like? A wicked man. Hating Christians, hating Christ. It says in verse 3 that he was ravaging the church. And the word there actually refers to wild animals that would go out and destroy things. And that's what Saul was like. He was like this wild animal who was out seeking to destroy the church. Going from house to house, dragging off men and women, putting them in prison because he hates Christ. And he hates the church. Go back to chapter 9. There are two other places in the book of Acts where Paul's conversion is recorded. One place is in Acts chapter 22. The other place is in Acts chapter 26. And in those places, he says this. He says, I persecuted this way to the death. Meaning he was murderous. He was wanting to actually kill Christians. He says, I was binding and putting men and women in prisons Acts chapter 22, verse 19 says that he says, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. So not only was he seeking to imprison them, he was beating them, destroying them, killing them. Acts 26, verse 11 says he chased them around the country trying to imprison them. He wanted to stamp out this church. And so as we come to chapter 9, he's on this same war path. He, he's still intent on, on destroying the church and anyone who embraces Christ. And he's hot on the trail of anyone who is proclaiming the name of Christ. And so chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 say that he requests. He requests letters 
from the high priest to be written to the synagogues of Damascus in order to uh, make legal the arrest and the imprisonment of those who belong to the way. Paul had obviously heard that there, was, there were Christians in Damascus. So in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, it says that there was a great persecution that arose that sends the Christians out. They flee this persecution, many of them to a city called Damascus. And Paul had heard about this group there, this group of Christians, and so he goes seeking to wipe them out. You see how murderous he is? Wicked? In Philippians chapter 3, he, he tells us that he actually thought this was what he was supposed to do. In his zeal, in his passion for the Lord, in his strange understanding of Jewish legalism and Judaism, he felt like this was actually acceptable to the Lord, that he was doing what God wanted him to do. Philippians chapter 3, he says, he says I, I, I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is found in the law, found blameless. See, he, he thought he had checked every religious box. I'm from the right tribe. I'm from the right people. I hold to the law. I even persecuted those Christians. He was banking on the fact that he had checked all the boxes. This was what this man was like. Wicked, violent, malicious. And what I want you to understand is that those are the people God saves. Those are the people that God draws to himself. And maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, you know, I've done so many bad things. I'm too wicked. I've got too sordid of a past. I've got too much baggage. God could never save me. He could never forgive me. He could never show me mercy and grace because of everything I've done. You need to understand that that's not what God thought of Paul, a murderer. And if he can save that man, he can save you. Incredible grace displayed to, to Paul, but this is what he was like. Prior to conversion, a wicked, vile, sinful man. Number two, the second C I want you to see is his confrontation. First, we see his corruption. Secondly, I want you to see his confrontation because God does a work to get a hold of Paul's heart. And you can see it in verse 3. It says, It came about that as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground. And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This must have been an incredible experience. Paul is on his way to destroy Christians in Damascus. He is charging full speed ahead, infuriated by the revival that he has heard taking place in Damascus of believers gathered there. And so he's on his way with his entourage, with hostility in his heart, seeking to destroy them. And on his way, he is suddenly arrested and stopped in his tracks by a light, a light from heaven. Say, well, it's just the sun. No, it's not the sun. Because Acts chapter 26 tells us it was the midday. It was the middle of the day, the brightest time of the day when the sun is at its highest and its brightest. This was no sun. This was the glory, the blazing glory of Jesus Christ. And Saul is confronted with the risen Christ. He sees Christ in his glory. You say, how do you know? Look at verse 5. It says, he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. This is Christ. He sees the risen Christ. He comes face to face with the very person he hates. 
That's very important because one of the qualifications of an apostle is you must see the risen Christ. And so here he is, the apostle to the Gentile, uh, Gentiles on the road to Damascus, confronted with the resurrected Jesus. So bright was this light that verse 4 says he fell to the ground. Tremendous. Can you imagine this experience? This was nothing short of a divine confrontation with the blazing glory of Christ. And what I want you to understand is that salvation is first and foremost a work of God. It is first and foremost a work of God pursuing sinners. Now, it's not always this dramatic. Okay? Don't expect to have your conversion experience just this way. But you need to understand that God is the one who initiates the work of salvation. Saul's on his way to kill Christians, and God intervenes and stops him. It's an evidence of divine grace. It's an evidence of sovereign grace. It's an evidence of the fact that God sovereignly works and draws sinners to himself. This is divine election. This is divine regeneration. This is divine calling. This is the sovereignty of God invading the life of this man to bring him to himself. And that's what makes salvation so glorious. If you're here today and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it's not because you just woke up one day and thought that would be a good thing to do. You're a believer in Jesus Christ because God sought you out in his mercy and in his grace. And the reason that's important is because if God doesn't, no one can be saved. Ephesians 1, 2, verse 1 says we're dead in our trespasses. We're dead in our transgressions. We're we're spiritually dead. So nothing that is spiritually dead can make any movement towards God. God has to do the first work in the heart of a sinner. And that's what the doctrine of regeneration is all about. That's where election and calling and foreknowledge and predestination lead to. They lead to the sovereign work of God in the heart of an individual that he has chosen for himself. You say, well, I think... Salvation is for anybody. It is. It is for anybody who believes. The gospel is for anybody who will believe. It's open to anyone who who will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They will be saved. It's open to anybody. But on the other hand, God is also the one who initiates that work. Sovereign work of grace. And that's what you see taking place here. And what you're going to hear in the testimonies this morning are people who have been saved by the sovereign grace of Jesus Christ. Number three, there's a third C, it's conviction. Corruption, confrontation, thirdly is conviction. Conviction. Look at verse four. It says, he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? So Saul hears this voice of Christ in verse 7, actually tells us that other people who were with him heard something as well. They heard the voice, but they saw nobody. Must have been a tremendous experience for those that were traveling with Paul. And notice what Christ says. Christ says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? Notice he doesn't say, why are you persecuting my church? He says, why are you persecuting me? Which tells us something very significant about the union of the believer with Christ. It tells us that when you attack the church, you attack Christ himself. Any attack upon the bride of Christ is an attack upon the person of Christ because they're so intimately related, so intimately connected. It shows very clearly the inseparable union between Christ and his followers. 
So Jesus asked him the question, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And that question right there was meant to prick Paul's heart. It was meant to convict him. It was meant to rebuke him. It was meant to bring anguish to his soul, to bring him to the point of conviction. Christ asks a piercing question. He says, Paul, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this to me? Why are you attacking me? Why are you confronting me? Why, why are you persecuting me, Paul? And I have to imagine at that very moment, Saul came under deep, deep conviction. Holy Spirit wrought conviction over his wickedness, over his hatred, over his attack against Christ himself. And I believe in that moment, he suddenly realized that his attacks and his sin were not ultimately against Christians, but against Christ himself. I believe at this moment, the Holy Spirit of God was working in Saul's heart to bring him to the point of conviction, to press upon him the weight of his sin to the point that he was crushed to the ground and fell on his face, sensing the full weight of his sin. Friends, that's where salvation starts. It starts with a deep conviction over sin. It starts with a deep awareness that we have offended a holy God. It starts with a deep sense of conviction over the fact that we have been rebellious against Him. We have not followed His instructions. We have resisted Him. We have disobeyed Him. We have pursued our own way. We have sought to live our own life in opposition to God. We have denied His existence. We have sought to live our lives without Him. And friends, you've got to come to that point before you can know Christ. You have to come to the point of deep conviction as David did in Psalm 51 where he says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You've got to come to that point. It's the point that Paul is brought to, Saul is brought to right here. And friends, you've got to hear that because you don't sense your need for a Savior until you sense that. You don't sense your need for a Redeemer until you sense that. You don't sense your, your need for a rescue until you sense that, until you understand you are under wrath, under God's judgment for sin, for rebellion. And that's for everybody. That's not just for murderous Paul. That's for all of us. We've all broken God's law and offended Him, and there are none of us who are righteous, Romans 3 says. Corruption, confrontation, conviction, number four, conversion. Conversion. And you can see it in verse five. He says, who are you, Lord? I, I think Saul must have at that point understood this is not normal. <laughs> okay, this light from heaven, this whole experience, this voice from heaven, something supernatural is going on here that I don't understand. This, is, this must be someone greater than me. And at that point, he understands this is Christ. As Christ says to him in verse 5, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And I have to imagine right at that moment, everything clicked for Saul. He knew about Christ. He knew what Christ came to do. He, he, had, he had denied it all of his life, but he knew about it. He denied the resurrection, but he knew about it. He denied the death of Christ, but he knew about it. And so certainly now he, he's here standing face to face with the risen Christ, and I believe in this moment as Christ speaks to him and says, Saul, why are you doing this to me? 
in that moment, I believe the light bulb went on, no pun intended, and he saw Christ for who he is, and he couldn't deny the resurrection anymore because the resurrected Jesus is standing there talking to him. I believe in that moment, on a dirty, dusty, hot Middle Eastern road, Christ invaded Saul's heart. And he would never be the same. Transformed, changed, forgiven, given a new heart, given a new life, made into a new creature. He experienced right there on that road a miraculous conversion by the saving power and grace of Jesus Christ. He surrendered there in that moment to the lordship of Jesus. And he's marvelously converted. Want to hear some more of his testimony? Go over to Philippians chapter 3, just, just very quickly. Let me show you two passages that give us a window into what God was doing in his heart in that moment. Philippians chapter 3. And I want you to see how Paul in that moment came to realize the glories of Christ and how superior they were to anything that he was pursuing in Judaism. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 4, contains his testimony again. He says in verse 4, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is found in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. Now, did he recognize all of this at that moment on the Damascus Road? I'm not sure he did, but that's what God did in his heart. He came to the point where he recognized everything that was a credit to him belongs in the debit column, and everything that was a debit belongs in the credit column. He came to see Christ as precious, valuable, to the point where everything else was rubbish. Go over to 1 Timothy chapter 1, one other passage. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. He says, Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ is. Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost. And yet for this reason I found mercy. In order that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. That's what Christ did in that moment in the Damascus Road. He invaded Paul's heart and convicted him of his sin. And drew this former blasphemer and persecutor to wonderful salvation. 
Some of you may be here today and you don't know Christ yet. We would urge you, plead with you, sense the urgency of the moment to come to Christ. Experience Christ like Paul did, like the people in the testimonies that you're going to hear in just a few moments did. See the glories of Christ. Exchange your sin for his righteousness. Receive forgiveness. Have hope of eternal life, which is all possible because of Christ. Well, one more. See, it's commission. Corruption, confrontation, conviction, conversion. Fifthly, commission. Very quickly, let me just show you these following verses because at this point, God commissions Saul to the work that he gave him to do. Look at verse 10, back in Acts chapter 9. It says, Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Not only was God working in the heart of Saul to draw him to himself, God was also working in the heart of Ananias, a Christian in Damascus who, ironically, Paul was probably going to kill. And God says to Ananias, Ananias, I want you to go find this man. Well, Ananias had heard about this man. Look at verse 13. Ananias answered, uh, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Ananias says, um, uh, time out, God. Uh, me? I don't think so. That guy's out to get us. Verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go. For he's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings for the sons of Israel. God says, go, Ananias, because he's mine. I've called him, I've redeemed him, and I'm going to use him greatly for my kingdom. Verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house. After laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh, what a glorious transformation. Former persecutor of the church, now made into a lover of the church. Writer of half the New Testament. Church planter extraordinaire. Martyr for the faith and trophy of God's grace. That's who Paul was. God raised him up to be a mighty man of God whom he used greatly for his kingdom. Friends, listen, you give your life to Christ you keep saying yes to the Lord, hang on for the ride. Because God will use you mightily for his purposes. He will use you mightily for his kingdom. And God wants to redeem sinners, not just to give you a new life in heaven, but to use you for his purposes in this life, to draw others to himself. Look at verse 18. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight and arose... And was baptized. Was baptized. I want you to notice three things about Paul's baptism here. We're going to close with this. Just three very important basic truths that you need to, need to be aware of related to baptism. First, number one, Paul's baptism was an immediate baptism. This was an immediate baptism. Conversion, baptism. 
and not a lot of time in between. And that's the pattern that we see all throughout the book of Acts. Just go back to Acts chapter 2 and you can look at the early church when 3,000 souls were saved and baptized. Go back to Acts chapter 8 and Philip who shared the gospel with the Ethiopian and the Ethiopian stops the chariot and says, Hey, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Go to Acts chapter 10, Cornelius and his family are saved and baptized. Go to Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer and Lydia saved, baptized. This is the pattern that we see all throughout Scripture. Salvation, baptism, conversion, baptism with not a lot of time in between. And the reason for that is because in the early church, Christians were identified as the baptized ones. It was a mark of salvation. It was an evidence of the fact that you belong to Christ. It was an immediate baptism. And that's why I said earlier, if you're here today and you've come to Christ but have not yet been baptized by immersion, friends, consider it. It's one of the two ordinances of the church Jesus says to the disciples in Matthew 28, go make disciples, teaching them, baptizing them. It's part of being a believer. It's one of the first steps of obedience. That's why we're so encouraged and delighted to have six stand before you in just a moment to give their testimonies. Second thing I want you to notice, it was an immersion baptism. It was an immersion baptism. You say, how do you know that, Todd? It's not even, it doesn't say that in the text. You You know the way I know that? Because of the word, baptism is the word baptizo, and it always means to immerse or to submerge or to drown. Don't worry, we're not going to do that to you today, but that's what the word means. It always means to place under the water. And so in Scripture, there is not one evidence of sprinkling. There's not one evidence of pouring some water on someone's head. Every baptism in the Scripture is a baptism by immersion. Go to Christ's baptism. Go look at the baptism of John the Baptist. Go read through the books of the the, the New Testament. Go look at the book of Acts and see every single case is baptism by immersion. It is the biblical method. It is the way God intended this ordinance to be celebrated. The mode is important because of number three. It's important because it was an illustrative baptism. And this gets to the heart of what we're doing today. Baptism is meant to illustrate. Baptism doesn't save anybody. No baptism will ever make a sinner into a saint. No person will ever be secured in their eternity just by being baptized. You you can't be saved by your baptism. But baptism illustrates. And it illustrates glorious truths. It illustrates new life in Christ. And when we put those under the water, it's a symbol of the washing away of their sin. And as they come up out of the water, it's a symbol of new life in Jesus Christ. Those are the spiritual realities that are being communicated in this marvelous ordinance that Christ has instituted for us. It's a means of identifying ourselves with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this is a rich rich ordinance that Christ has given for us. Let me read for you a confession that the early Christians said just prior to their baptism. Quote, I hereby confess in my willing submission to this divinely appointed ordinance my glad obedience to my Lord and Savior. In this symbolic way, I show my identification with the one who bore my sins took my place, died in my stead, was buried, and rose again for my justification. 
as Christ went through the reality of suffering and death to secure my salvation. So, in being immersed into water and coming out, I thus publicly declare my identification with my Lord in His death, burial, and resurrection on my behalf with the intention to walk with Him in newness of life and function as a member of His body. That's what people are saying today. By being baptized, by being obedient to these this marvelous ordinance, that's exactly what they're saying. I'm identified with Christ. I am united with Him. And I want to publicly profess my allegiance to Jesus. Aren't you grateful for this ordinance? So thankful that God has given us the privilege to remember and celebrate His work of grace. Would you pray with me? And then we'll have the people who are be baptized come and share their testimonies. Father, we thank You for this marvelous marvelous ordinance. We thank you, Lord, for the Apostle Paul and his glorious conversion, how you transformed this man, how you truly regenerated him, drew him to yourself, and raised him up to be a trophy of your grace. Lord, we We thank you for it. We thank you for the ordinance of baptism and what it depicts and what it illustrates. And we thank you for those that will come now and share their testimonies and give witness to the fact that you have done a work in their hearts as well. Lord, may the focus, may the glory be on you, because you are the author and the initiator of this glorious salvation. We thank you for these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.